Psalm 34, 1 to 9. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Oh, Lord, you are good. And you alone are our refuge. Help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us that our lives may be songs of praise before you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Don. Good morning and happy new year. Um, Thank you. My name is Steve Kamer, and I work with our college students as well as our resident seminary program here at the church. And it is really, really good to be with you this morning uh, on, on the first Sunday of 2020, the first Sunday of a new decade. I know for me, uh, the fact that it's 2020 has a little bit of a unique significance, uh, and it has so for the last 28 years. Back in 1992, um, I had just graduated high school. I was in college. And if you were alive then, you remember that in 1992 was a big election year. And uh, my friend Kelly Mulholland and I, who I think is actually crazy enough here this morning, and along with several others, were pretty involved in the election. We were helping several candidates campaign. And as the election went on, uh, some of them did well, some of them didn't. But I remember sitting together after the election one night, and we were kind of like, Man, we're done with this. You know what? You and me should run for president and vice president. And we should do so in 2020. And so we were, we were serious about it. We were going to go for it, and we headed on. He went on uh, to study computers uh, in college, so I guess we'd have the money to do a campaign. And I went on to study political science. I don't know why, but we were going to go and, and be pre- he was going to be president. I'd be the man if he died. And, and we were going for it. Uh, and over the years, you know, God had taken our hearts and our lives on, on different directions. But over the years, we, we had served together in several different comp- uh, countries. We've stayed close. And every few years, we'd be like, you know, 2020 is getting pretty close. And we're not really on track. Uh, 2020 is 10 years away. And uh, we're going to need to make some changes if we want to make this happen. We were laughing at this point. 2020 is five years away. Last year, we joked about it. It's coming up next year. And uh, I... It's 2020 now, and uh, Kelly, along with his wife Kate, are serving as missionaries with crew in Greece and Ireland. I'm, of course, standing up here this morning, and I think it's safe to say that I can officially announce we will not be running for president <laughs> this year. Um, and while a call uh, of God on someone's life to go into politics is as valid a call as any, I can't think of a place I'd rather be than with you this morning walking through Psalm 34. 
Psalm 34 is an amazing psalm where David talks about his praise of the Lord and he praises the Lord and he invites us into it to join him in his praise. We love this psalm because it echoes so much of what is going on in our heart. Just a few weeks before Christmas, I had the opportunity to go up to uh, some of the staff training for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's the, the university campus ministry of our denomination. And they hold uh, a, a staff training all over for, for everyone in the country. One week, usually in Denver, I got to go up to it. We were talking with some of the people about some of the things we could partner with. And I snuck into one of the meetings. And strangely enough, I'd been in that exact same hotel for staff training with crew before. And I, so I kind of felt at home. I snuck into the back of a meeting. And they were, it was a discussion, sort of a debate, about what kind of music they should play in their weekly meetings, their weekly worship meetings on campus. And I kind of chuckled because I was like, I've never sat through a meeting like this before. But the reason why they were doing it and the reason that it's important is that in the Reformed tradition, we believe that worship is formative. The songs we sing this morning, the prayers that we pray, the giving that we give, and the word that we hear preached is formative. We believe that while we're here sitting in these pews, that God forms us through the worship. And I couldn't think of a better way to start the new year and the new decade than to let the word of God form us through Psalm 34. As I mentioned before, Psalm 34 starts with David talking about his praise. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. So David starts it in worship and he starts it in praise and he invites us into it. But right away, when I, when I read a psalm like this, and there are several, there's a problem that I come across in this very first verse. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And uh, I always have to ask myself, um, with a bar set that high, is praise for the Lord always in my mouth? Do I bless him at all times? I, I even asked that of you this morning. And I know for me, and probably most of you, the answer is no. Praise the Lord is not continually in my mouth. I'm not blessing him at all times. And it's not that David was perfect and that, I mean, this is a psalm, it's poetry. It's not that he literally praised the Lord at all times. We know that, you know, he was about to fall into all sorts of problems later as he was king. But does praise for the Lord characterize our lives at all times? Does blessing the Lord and having his praise continually on our mouth characterize our lives? Because I believe we want it to characterize our lives. And what is going on here in this passage, we see it in verse four. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from my fears. David had gotten himself in a situation that he was afraid of something. And fear is a very powerful emotion. A lot of people believe that fear is kind of the base 
emotion underneath all the negative emotions we experience in our lives. Mark said this just a few weeks ago that fear robs us of our joy. He had had a very intense fear and because he saw God deliver him from it, he had a very intense praise. And I wanna ask you this morning as we are walking through this passage and let it form us, what are some of the things that you're afraid of? What are some of your fears going into 2020? There are, I mean, there are a lot of things to be afraid of in this world. It's a very broken place. But what are some of your fears? It might be health. Maybe you have some health fears, sort of like what David had. Maybe it's money. Maybe you fear that you're not going to have enough as the year goes on. Maybe it's a relationship that you want or might fall apart. It might be your marriage. You might be scared for your marriage. You might be scared to obey what you know God's call on your life is. Uh, I know for me, there can be lots of times of fear. Maybe you're afraid of what other people think of you. You hear this one a lot, and for years I never really worried about it. I was like, people like me, I don't need to worry about that. But as time went on, more and more that fear crept in. What are people gonna think of me? What are people gonna think of my ministry? Um, maybe it's fear of failure. What, is, what are those fears that wake you up in the middle of the night? Sometimes for me, it's like the, the fear that, that the rug will finally get pulled out from under me and, and I'll fail. I'll not be able to pull off the things I want to pull off. I'll be seen as a failure. And all those things I was tempted to believe about myself for all these years will finally be true. Because if you fear the fears that you have, they will rob you of joy. And I promise you, if they're unresolved, Praise will not be continually on your lips. You will not have a life characterized by that. So what do we do with these fears? And this passage gives us at least three things that we can do with our fears. And it, and it might not even be fears. If it's not fears for you, maybe you lock this away for later. But what is it in your life that keeps you from praise continually on your lips? The three things are that we can take our fears to a God who delivers. Second, we can take our fears to a God who is to be feared. And third, we can take our fears to a God who is good. First, we can take our fears to a God who delivers. You know, David had gotten himself into a, a pretty sticky situation and he indeed needed to be afraid. Uh, as Don read at the very beginning of this passage, this is actually part of scripture. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Uh, David, uh, this is, that you can find the story in 1 Samuel 21. And this is when David had begun to flee from Saul for his life. Saul was the first king of Israel, but actually due to his own unresolved fears and disobedience, he had lost the Lord's anointing as king and it had been given to David. But Saul was going to be king until he died and, and David was going to have to wait. And Saul knew this. He was jealous and he wanted to kill David. So he was pursuing David to kill him and David was fleeing. He goes first to a city called Nob and he goes to the priests of Nob and he actually lies to them. He says he's on a mission from the king when he's not. But while he's there, he says, you know, I left in a hurry and I didn't grab in a sword or any weapon to defend myself. Do you have anything that, that I could have. And, you know, they said, the only thing we have is the sword 
that you used to kill Goliath. You can have it. He's like, sure, I'll take it. And if you remember the story of David and Goliath, David had taken the stones and the sling and killed Goliath with them, with them, but he finished it by taking out his sword and cutting off Goliath's head. So he takes this sword, and then what he does next is, is, is pretty confusing. Scripture doesn't tell us why he does this, but he goes to the city of Gath. Many commentators think this is probably a silly move on David's part, but he goes to the city of Gath, and here's the problem with Gath. It's a Philistine city, and the Philistines are the sworn enemies of Israel. And not only is it a Philistine city, it's the hometown of Goliath, who David killed. So he goes into the sworn enemy city, having killed the hometown hero with what on his hip? The sword he used to cut his head off. This was not friendly territory. And when he gets there, the servants of Achish, the king of Gath, say to him, he said, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The scripture says when David heard this, he was very much afraid. <laughs> so he had reason to be scared. And what David does in this instance is he decides to act like a crazy person. He decides to act like a madman. He goes down to the gates of the city and he's writing strange things on the gates. And the scripture says that he lets saliva drip down his beard and he looked crazy and, and the king sees him and he's like, this guy is no threat to me. I, I, I have enough crazy people around me. I don't need him here. And he lets David go. And David, as he's writing this psalm, sees this deliverance and, he get, and it gives him much praise. I'm sure in his mind he had thoughts of many times he had been delivered from God because we know as the story goes, he's delivered many times. Where have you, have you been delivered? Where have you seen God's deliverance in your life? If you're here and alive, you have been delivered a lot. And you probably don't even know it. But even in your fears, what are some of the things that you're scared of that maybe you saw didn't come to fruition? That God delivered you from it. And here's the thing. We want often God to rather be preventer than deliverer. And he doesn't. He doesn't always prevent trials and calamity and even suffering come into our lives. But he is deliverer. And he has delivered you. If you are in Christ, he has delivered you from the very most thing you needed to be delivered from most. Death, sin, and hell. You have been delivered from the thing you needed to be delivered from most. Colossians 1.13 tells us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have been moved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and all the things that you need to be true about you, that scripture says is true about you in Christ, are true in this kingdom. That you are redeemed. That you are a new creation with a new heart. That you are God's beloved. That you're his bride, the things we talk about here all the time, that you're forgiven, that God delights in you. You have been delivered from a place where that wasn't true to a place where that was true, where he will never leave you or forsake you. 
He's our deliverer. And can you imagine as you take your fears and the things that stop you from having praise continually on our, your lips and you take it to this reality, do you not see your fears begin to diminish, to lose a little bit of control over your life? And is it welling up? Are we being formed wanting to praise this God who has delivered us? And secondly, we can take our fears to a God who is to be feared. The fear of the Lord plays prominently in our passage. It's in three of the, passage, uh, the verses 7, 9, and 11. Uh, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And verse 11 was right after the verse we read this morning. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now this term, fear of the Lord, can be a confusing one. Uh, Mark has talked about it often, so I don't want to belabor it too much. But what does the fear of the Lord mean? And maybe even more importantly, what does it not mean? I just finished saying that God is our deliverer. And we've been delivered from everything we needed to be afraid of when it came to God. First John chapter 4 tells us that fear has to do with punishment. We'll have news for you. In this deliverance, God's punishment, if you are in him, is no longer an option for you. It is impossible. It is impossible that God will punish you. You don't need to be afraid of God. For a Christian, for actually somebody, if you have been born again, it is inappropriate for you to fear God's punishment because he'll never bring it to you. It was fully on Jesus. It is fully on Jesus. We don't need to be afraid anymore. You might have discipline come into your lives. You might have consequences of sin. You might have pain. I don't think that's something we need to be afraid of. First John 4 also says that perfect love drives out fear. And to the extent that we understand God's love, we will understand that any discipline, any pain, any consequences that come into our lives are not retributive, therefore are good. And if we knew everything God knows, we would beg for everything God gives, even if it hurts, because it's always for our good. So what then does it mean? There's a lot of ways to say it. I think the scripture even says it many, many ways. Lots of people have taken to trying to define it. The most common sort of definition is reverential awe. It's seeing God for who he is and in reverence and being in awe of him. Many others have added to it to try to define this complicated phrase. One of my favorites comes from Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. He says, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and all that he has done for us. I'll simplify this a little bit for you. Here's what I think it means. It means taking into account all of who God is, his character, his holiness, his grace, his love, his unconditional love for us, and making him number one in your life, period. Giving him the highest priority in your life and living out the implications of it. That's what I believe 
fear of the Lord means. And in scripture, the number one motivation that God gives us to fear him is his unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness. That's why all these words come in like wonder and beauty when you begin to talk about the Lord because when you begin to talk about the fear of the Lord because the only things that you put at the number one priority in your life are the things that are the most beautiful, the things that give you the most awe, the things that give you that you at least think will give you the most fulfillment. Those are the only things you put in the number one spot. You even think whatever sin it might be that you find in the number one spot, even if it's addiction, maybe addiction to drugs, you put it there because in the moment of that hit, you're given a sense of wonder, a sense of beauty, a sense of awe. It's a false one. It won't last. But that's what got you to put it at number one. That's what fear of the Lord is. And I think we struggle a little bit with this because honestly, our default mode, I believe, is to be afraid of God. Our sinful nature, that while dead, is still hanging on. And we battle with it all the time. And it, its default mode is to be afraid of God because its default mode is a works-based relationship with God. That if we do enough, we'll be loved, we'll get to go to heaven, we'll, we'll have his blessing. But then if we don't do enough, we won't have these things. And you must want to have a sense of being afraid of God if your relationship with God is gonna be based on your works. And I think sometimes we can be a little scared and, and thinking, you know what? If I have no terror of the Lord, if the sense of being afraid is taken out of this idea of fear of God, then uh, won't I be too cavalier in my relationship with God? Will I not respect our King with the respect that he deserves. And I would argue this, if you actually see the wickedness and extent of your own sin put up against the wonder of a God who has delivered you and loves you like he loves you, there is no way it is impossible that you will approach God with any sense of being cavalier, that you won't respect him with the respect he deserves as king. Because you will be, my favorite phrase for being fearing God, you'll be blown away by his wonder. Again, I ask, as we look at a God like this, we do not need to be afraid of him who is beautiful and wonder and we're in awe of him. Put that up against your fears. Do they continue to lose a little bit of control over you? Are you feeling just a sense of wanting to have praise be continually on your lips? Maybe just even stand up and praise him now. And thirdly, I saved the best for last, subjectively, I think. But uh, verse eight says that we can take our fears to a God who is good. Um, this, this passage culminates, even as Don read it, he emphasized it in verse eight. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The, the uh, call here is not to just know that God is good. The call here is to experience that God is good in the same way that you experience taste and sight. It is not enough for God to just know. It is not enough for God for you to just know that he is good. That's not enough to, to change you and to mold you and to have praise be continually on your lips. He wants you to experience it. 
He wants you to experience it. Think of your favorite food. Think of your favorite meal. For me, uh, often during special occasions when we're camping, I buy a big old special steak and I cook it in a, in a cast iron skillet lathered with butter and spices. And I love it. It's amazing. You should try cast iron if you hadn't. None of the juices escape. And my family loves it. And I remember every single time when I take that first bite, think of it with me, your favorite food. When I take that first bite and it hits my taste buds, I'm always like, oh, and I kind of sink into my chair and I'm like, wow, that's an experience of it. Or maybe it's your, your favorite picture or piece of art, or maybe it's a scenery. I walked out this morning at sunrise and I saw Pikes Peak in all of its glory, bright and pink. And you see it and you're like, wow, God wants us to experience that he is good. And how do we do that? You know, experiencing his goodness is a work of the Holy Spirit. So just real practically, you can pray that you experience the goodness of God. You can be engaged in the spiritual disciplines. Are you reading your Bible? When you're reading your Bible, you will experience. It's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit uses to give you an experience of God's goodness, to give you fear for him, to let you see him as your deliverer. You know, be here on Sunday mornings. That is an awesome way to taste and see that God is good because remember, as I said, worship is formative. As we're here, we are formed. There are so many times in the 8.30 service, I usually sit over here with my family, I'm sitting over there and things aren't connecting with me and I, I don't feel like God is good and I am formed through the worship and reminded of who God is. And even you can be a part of sharing that goodness in order to experience that goodness. As Don said, this year we're going to be focusing on loving our city, finding your place to serve, finding avenues and opportunities to share with people God's goodness. Because the goodness and the way I'm describing God is not the way most people think Christianity is. They think it's earning their salvation. Even, even if they believe in God, even if they believe in Jesus, they might be like me for 18 years of my life. Yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross, but he died there so that if I'm good enough, I can go to heaven. There's lots of thoughts like that. Those kind of thoughts will never lead to praise of God being continually on our lips because these people need to know, just as much as we do, the lavishness of God's love and goodness. There's a, a, a radio, a morning show here in town. It's syndicated out of uh, Arizona, and during Christmas, I listen to it every morning after I drop off my oldest to school, and it's the John Janerich Morning Show, and they do something called the Christmas Gift during Christmas time, and it's where they help needy, needy families who have fallen on hard times and aren't really able to do Christmas on their own. Somebody nominates them. Often it's a single mom who's maybe escaped a dangerous situation or, or a family who's fallen on hard times. There's several children, and they've been an inspiration to those around them. They take care of their kids. They're working maybe two, three jobs, and they've fallen on a little bit of hard times, and they're not able to uh, make ends meet at the moment, and they get the person who nominated them on the phone and, and, and they get the person who's been nominated and they read why they've been such an inspiration to them. And, and then the DJs do this every single time. We're going to grant your Christmas wish. And here it comes. I'm usually driving home right now at this point. I know I'm about to start crying, but I have to listen to it every time. And it usually goes something like this. They say, it's almost always the mom. They say, 
we heard that you've been having a little trouble and gotten behind in your bills. And she's like, yeah. And he goes, well, we're going to give you $1,000 to catch up on your bills. And right away, she's like, oh my gosh, thank you. I mean, you just get a call from a radio station and they're going to give you $1,000. That just made your day. That just made your season. But they haven't even gotten started. And we're also going to give you $500 at King Supers so that you can have full cupboards for the whole holiday season. And uh, we heard your kids need some new clothes. We're going to give you $500 at Old Navy to buy them all new clothes. And we're going to give you $500 at Famous Footwear to buy everybody new shoes. And then at this point, she's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I warn you, they've just gotten started. So have my tears usually at this point. But then one of my favorite parts, they go into a section where they've done the research on each of her children. There's always several of them. And they found out exactly what they wanted for Christmas and they got it. You know, your son Toby, he's 16. We heard that you know, he, he's getting into music. Well, we bought him a brand new electric guitar. And it's always things that are huge that she could never afford. And this is where she really just sort of squeals with glee, if you will, because these are things she could never get for her kids. And they were going to be given to her. And then it keeps going, hey, we haven't forgot about you. And then they shower a whole bunch of gifts on her. And then we haven't forgot about your whole family. And they shower a whole bunch of gifts on them. Gifts to, you know, this movie theater and this fun spot and this amusement park. And at this point, she's out of words. She's said thank you so many times. She doesn't know what to say anymore. Um, at this point, you know, I'm always, I've, I've pulled into the garage by now. They're always kind of long, sort of like this story. And I'm, the, the tears are in my eyes. And I'm like, man, I better get myself together. Kendra's going to think I'm having a nervous breakdown in the garage. But there's always one more gift. You know, they say, we heard, you know, your washer and dryer aren't working. Those are really expensive. Well, the local appliance store is going to deliver one to your house in a couple days. And you know what? I love it so much because it is a picture, even on an infinitely smaller level, of all that God has lavished on us in his goodness. And here's the deal. Every single time, without exception, the woman will say either this exactly or something to the effect, this is too much. This is too much. You know, I think if we could see fully all of the, of the grace and love that God has lavished on us, I think we'd be the same way. We'd see our sin and we'd be like, this is too much. God, you've given us too much. You know, in the kingdom in heaven, when we stand before God, we will see fully all that he's lavished on us. And at that point, I don't think we'll say it's too much. I think we'll simply worship like crazy. Praise for the Lord will literally be on our mouths continually forever. And it will be a beautiful thing. You see, on the cross... This shows up in several of the Gospels. When Jesus was near breathing his last, he cries out in anguish to his father. And someone took a sponge or hyssop with sour wine, often considered vinegar. It's the stuff that the, even the common people didn't want to drink. And, and it, they put it up to his lips to take a sip. I don't know if you've ever drank vinegar before. I haven't. Actually, I've smelled it and that's enough. But it's very, very bitter. Jesus on the cross tasted both physically and metaphysically the bitterness of God's punishment and wrath so that you would never have to. Jesus on the cross tasted the bitterness of having God turn his back on him as he bore our sins so that you could taste and see that he is good. 
I don't want to be naive or too simplistic about this because I know uh, sometimes you, you take your fears or the things that keep you from, from having praise on your lips or even your sin, and uh, you look at them and you hear from up front as we do often, we're talking about how much God loves you and how much that should change everything. And I believe it's true. I believe it is the way to see your fears diminish, to see them lose their control in your life. But I know for, for everyone, it doesn't work. I've been there at times, sitting in the pew, scared of something, and, and the love of God does not feel comforting to me. First of all, it takes time. I get it. I, I've sat across the table from many who are struggling, either with their sin or, or a fear, and, and the love of the Lord isn't comforting. But here's the thing. I don't mean to be too harsh here, but if everything I've said put up against your fears or whatever's keeping you from praising the Lord, if at least over time, if it provides you no comfort, if it does not help the fear lose its control, the God who we've been talking about this morning, the God of the scriptures in that moment is not your God. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but in the moment, he is not your God because you have put something above him. You were not fearing the Lord at the time. You have put something higher than God as a bigger priority in your life. Let's say it's money or your job. If it's up here and you fear that you're going to lose it and things begin to disintegrate, when God's down here on your priority and he's down here saying, I love you. I'll take care of you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It won't help because you have the wrong thing as the God in your life. And the good news is, he's the same God I've been talking about. He is deliverer. He loves you. He is good. You can come to him and repent. That's why we do a confession of sin every week here. You can come before him and repent. And I promise you, in it, you will taste and see that he is good. And I hope and pray this morning that we have indeed tasted and seen through the worship that we sung through the meditation on Psalm 34 that we have been formed. And in a moment, we're going to sing how great thou art. And I pray that you would praise deeply because you are tasting and seeing that God is good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we do long to taste and see that you are good. And Lord, you indeed are good and we lift you up this morning. Lord, as we think about our fears, as we think about the things that distract us from praise and worship of you, forgive us of those times that we put them ahead of you. Lord, we pray that you would just enliven our hearts, that we would indeed fear you, that we would be blown away by you, that we would see you as deliverer and see your goodness so that indeed praise would be a characteristic of our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen.